0: That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.
1: We are the descendants of an ancient civilization, one which mastered technology, mapped the cosmos, and understood our relationship with the natural world. Our ancestors traveled the world and built enormous structures. They scaled their creations into cities. They shared a common governance and similar religious beliefs. Our ancestors lived, as we do today, as a global society. Then around 14,500 years ago, this global superpower started to collapse. First came uncontrollable change, and then a cataclysm. In less than a week, everything and almost everyone was gone. Those left behind built monuments. Monuments not as tributes to gods or homage to kings. The monuments are a warning to future generations, to us. That warning is simple. Danger is coming. Our civilization has ended before, and it will end again. This is one story that big archaeology and world governments don't want you to know. Because once you hear it, you'll never trust them again. Because the danger that's coming, there's not a thing they can do to stop it. In 1994, German archeologist Klaus Schmidt was touring Turkish Neolithic sites when he spotted a limestone block poking out from a hillside. The locals called the area Potbelly Hill, or in their language, Gobekli Tepe. Schmidt and his team began excavating the hillside around the limestone. And though they didn't know it at the time, what they discovered would change everything we know about human history. We've all been taught the official story, the big archaeology story of the origin of human civilization. Stone Age hunter-gatherers emerged from the Last Ice Age and eventually discovered farming. These people organized into settlements in Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. Then, about 6,000 years ago, the first civilization was born, ancient Sumer. Stone Age humans before Sumer were primitive. Their most advanced technology was stone tools. At Gobekli Tepe, archaeologists uncovered four man-made stone enclosures covering 100,000 square feet of land. That's interesting, but there was a problem. The earliest parts of Gobekli Tepe were built 11,600 years ago. That's 6,000 years before the ancient Sumerians were doing anything. Now, this didn't make sense at all. 11,600 years ago was the end of the last Ice Age, Big archaeology said this far back in time, humans were following the migration of animals. They built temporary camps or at most mud huts. Humans were not building enormous permanent stone structures. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have the talent. Yet, here it was. So the more they dug, the more things stopped making sense. Soon archaeologists learned that the enclosures weren't built at the same time. This indicates long-term occupation of the site. Well, how long? Well, the newest structure was built about 10,500 years ago. That means Gobekli Tepe was occupied for over 1,000 years. Now, 1,000 years doesn't sound that long, but in human history, 1,000 years is a very long time. That's enough time for the Roman Empire to rise and fall and rise and fall again. The excavation of Gobekli Tepe continued, and from the perspective of the scientific establishment, things just kept getting worse. Gobekli Tepe wasn't haphazardly thrown together by Stone Age primitives. It was built strategically for a purpose. The four enclosures are circular, between 20 and 200 feet across, and all are angled toward the star Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. Many cultures throughout history built temples angled at Sirius. But not 12,000 years ago. Yet here it was. Over the course of 1,100 years, Sirius's alignment moved across the night sky. So the builders of Gobekli Tepe created newer enclosures to follow each realignment. To build these monuments required an understanding of astronomy, mathematics, and engineering. A project of this size would also require skills like community planning, administration, and division of labor. Big archaeology said people during this time had not yet acquired these skills. Yet here it was. Within each enclosure are T-shaped pillars, some of them 16 feet tall, each weighing up to 10 tons. 43 pillars have been excavated so far, but the Gobekli Tepe story is just getting started. Only 5% of the site has been uncovered. Recent LiDAR imaging revealed at least 15 to 20 additional structures and enclosures buried beneath the main site. And there are more than 200 additional stone pillars. Now, about those stone pillars, there's something very strange going on. Engraved on the pillars are depictions of humans, animals, and human-animal hybrids. There are foxes, lions, scorpions, snakes boar, wild donkey, gazelles, there's all kinds of things. And the work is very advanced. But the most advanced carvings are on the oldest pillars. As the site gets newer, the designs get less intricate. It's like technology and craftsmanship suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Somehow, 7,000 years before Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids of Giza were built, and 6,000 years before the invention of writing, humans were capable of building this. Where did the builders get this sudden knowledge? The Anunnaki. Well, the answer to that question is controversial. The Anunnaki. Maybe the human story doesn't start at the end of the last ice age like big archeology span wants us to think. Maybe before the last ice age, the earth was home to an older and much more advanced civilization. That civilization then taught the primitive local hunter-gatherers about mathematics and engineering. They also taught these primitive humans astronomy and told them to pay very close attention to the sky. These ancients then told the local people their story of the time before the Ice Age, when their civilization flourished. Pillar 43 in Enclosure D has become known as the Vulture Stone. On the Vulture Stone, there's a detailed carving that tells the story of these ancient people. Unfortunately, it's also the story of the end of the world. Pillar 43 in Enclosure D, also known as the Vulture Stone, depicts the worst day in human history. Engraved on the pillar are asterisms, which are bright star clusters like constellations. Pillar 43 points to Scorpius, Now, to be fair to skeptics, every culture is going to have different representations for their constellations. But look at the drawing on the vulture stone. Without a doubt, that is a scorpion. When the constellation Scorpius is lined up with the night sky, all the other drawings fall into place, each of them representing constellations. A sun sits atop the vulture's wing in the design, showing its placement in the sky in relation to the stars. If we use the central sun as a guide to line up the constellations, it reveals a star map. And every star map is a date stamp. Take the Hoover Dam, for example. Engraved on the floor of the dam is the exact configuration of the stars as seen from that location on the day the dam opened.
2: Ew, why did they
1: carve that in the
2: damn floor?
1: So if the structure is found thousands or millions of years from now, archaeologists will know the exact date. The
2: date the damn people made it. Right. Damn good idea.
1: The Vulture Stone shows the only time in history that this specific configuration of stars could be seen from Gobekli Tepe. It was a 100-year window between 10,900 to 10,800 BC, about 13,000 years ago. But wait, this is more than 1,000 years before Gobekli Tepe was built. So this tablet is telling a story of something that happened in the past. It's the story of a time period commonly referred to as the Younger Dryas, and the terror from the sky that changed the face of the Earth. The Ice Age lasted about 2.6 million years. Most of the Northern Hemisphere was covered by miles-thick sheets of ice. 30% of the Earth's surface was covered by glaciers. This sounds bad, but for the human race, it was good. Sure, the climate was cold, but it wasn't cold everywhere. Most of Africa and the Middle East were warm with plenty of plant and animal life. And the climate was consistent for 2.6 million years. Hominids had a nice stable climate in which to evolve during this time. Homo sapiens, modern humans, emerged during this time. We were born in the ice age. We thrived in it. Then the climate started changing. Temperatures became warmer year after year. The ice sheets slowly melted Sea levels gradually rose. This would have been a concern for the human civilization. But they were helpless to do anything about it.
2: Oh, so you admit that even if the climate is getting warmer, there's nothing we can do about it.
1: Well, that's an open debate. How dare you! Then suddenly, around 12,900 years ago, the Earth got cold again. Not as cold as before. But cold enough that humans understood how to survive and thrive in these conditions. This mini ice age was essentially a return to normal. But a thousand years later, this age of normalcy ended violently and suddenly. The ice sheets melted as they had before, but not over 2.6 million years. This time the ice melted in weeks. There was no time for civilization to adjust. This was the cataclysm. And there's evidence of this cataclysm in ice core samples taken from Greenland and Antarctica. There's evidence in sediment cores from the bottom of lakes and oceans. There's evidence in organic material that's been carbon dated. But there's also evidence of this disaster on pillar 43, the vulture stone. Along with giving us a date, the tablet also depicts the comet impact of the Younger Dryas. At the bottom of the pillar is a headless man linking the date to death. There's also a snake coming from the south. This has been said to represent three giant waves washing over the earth. Those could have been the tsunamis that we know for sure happened. But pillar 43 is only a piece of the story. Pillar 56 depicts more of the Younger Dryas impact, waves crashing, animals fleeing. Now, those are scary, but to me, pillar 18 is the most ominous depiction at Gobekli Tepe. First of all, it contains the only word on the whole site, The word is God.
2: Uh, Maybe it was saying, oh, God, we're going to die. Oh, oh, oh God, please save us.
1: I think it was saying exactly that.
2: Wait, wait, I was just joking.
1: Well, I think something very bad happened, and this pillar is a plea for help.
2: Oh, my my joke isn't very funny anymore.
1: Pillar 18 in Enclosure D focuses on the constellation we know as Aquarius. But when it was built, the pillar was probably centered on Taurus. Taurus. Now, if that's true, we now have a very big piece of this puzzle. The comet Enki was discovered in 1786 and takes about three years to orbit the sun. Enki is about three miles wide, not a huge comet, but not small either. The thing is, it used to be bigger, much bigger. It was part of what scientists call a mega comet, a hundred miles wide, and not just made of ice, but also glass, metal, and rock. About 20,000 years ago, the comet broke up. Uh, this is good, right? Oh no, this is bad, really bad. When the 100-mile comet broke up, it created an enormous debris field. Now, instead of one comet, you've got millions of smaller comets, ranging in size from grains of sand to over a mile across. When the Earth passed through that cloud of debris, the people at Gobekli Tepe would have seen a firestorm of comets raining down on the Earth, all coming from the Aquarius constellation, just as is depicted on Pillar 43. But here's the scary part. We fly through that same debris field every year. It's called the Torrid Meteor Shower, and it's caused a lot of damage through the years. And if you're watching this in September, October, or November, We're flying through it right now. When Gobekli Tepe was discovered, Big Archaeology had no choice but to admit they had underestimated the technological abilities of early man by, oh, about 5,000 years. It must be a mistake, they said. After all, their grant money depends on them being right. No need to fund a search for, let's say, a mummy in a pyramid. That's not going to be there. But in 2019, more bad news for the mainstream. That year, excavation started at Karahan Tepe, about 40 miles from Gobekli Tepe. Initial estimates say it might have been settled before Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe seems to have been built for a single purpose, maybe a place of worship or an observatory. Karahan Tepe is very different. It shows obvious signs of a structured society. Now, there are many different types of buildings at Karahan Tepe. Some could be shops or residences or food storage. Vessels, grindstones, flint, plates, and all kinds of other objects have been found at Karahan Tepe. These types of artifacts haven't been found at Gobekli Tepe, suggesting the two sites served very different social functions. But these places existed at the same time. So it's possible Gobekli Tepe was a religious center where Karahan Tepe was a residential neighborhood, or maybe a shopping district. And if that's true, there must be more settlements in the area yet to be found. There's more? Lots more. In 2021, the Turkish government announced the discovery of at least 11 additional hillsides, which contain structures very much like Gobekli Tepe. The hillsides make up a hundred mile ring with Gobekli Tepe in the center. These sites are known collectively as Tastepler. Now, instead of an area inhabited by nomadic primitives, Tastepler is a metropolis. Sybirch was uncovered by archaeologists in 2021, around 10 miles from Gobekli Tepe. Sybirch is one of the most complex settlements in the area. Archaeologists found communal buildings big enough to seat 50 people. There are communal halls covered with countless engravings of humans and animals. To the south of the communal buildings are ancient residential homes. The layout of each of the Tepler archaeological sites suggests hundreds of thousands of people live there, permanently, right after the Younger Dryas changed the face of the world. But there's a site discovered in 2008, about 180 miles away, which really broke history, and suggests Tostepler may have been a capital in what was a very busy region. While digging a dam in the area, engineers rediscovered the settlement of Bunkuklu Tarla. Damn, engineers. Look, you don't have to keep tagging that joke.
2: Oh, you don't like my damn jokes, (laughs) eh?
1: The Bunkuklu Tarla settlement is between 12,000 and 13,000 years old. That means it was built within the Younger Dryas Cold period,
3: before the flood. The structure found has similar features with Gobekli Tepe and the structures belonging to this period in the region. The building has a unique architectural style, shape, and interior arrangement, unique with these features. We can say that it is a temple that dates back to 12,000 years.
1: This is where the existence of an ancient advanced civilization starts to become almost irrefutable. Bungkuklu Tarla has all the things we find on Tastepler. Tepler, Private buildings, public spaces, it's got storage rooms, tools, ornamental objects, it's got mega and microliths. The people of Vankuk Tarla were so advanced, they even built a sewer system. More than 130 skeletons have been found there, each buried with hundreds of thousands of beads. The manufacturing of beads proves that there was a division of labor, an artisan class. It proves that the people had time for more than just hunting and gathering. They had time to make art.
2: Uh, Making beads is more of a craft than art, but I get your meaning. So big archaeology
1: was wrong again. Very, very wrong. This area of Turkey shows that thousands of people lived there in organized communities. They built neighborhoods and temples. They had shops and large halls for gathering. They had division of labor. They were experts at stonework. They understood mathematics and astronomy. They were talented engineers. And this was 12,000 years ago. But where's the evidence of people learning these skills? If the people at Gobekli Tepe were putting up 10-ton stone pillars ten to 12,000 years ago, shouldn't we see communities learning these skills 15,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago? We should see an evolution of technology that takes thousands of years. But we don't. This advanced technology just appeared. But that's not exactly true. The people in the area around Gobekli Tepe, Bangkuku Tarla, and Cyberch were taught this technology after the Great Flood. It was a gift to them, a gift from the people of the sea. Mainstream or big archaeology gets things wrong, a lot of things. Gobekli Tepe shouldn't be there, neither should Karahan Tepe, Tarla or any of the other settlements in the area. We're told the Great Pyramids of Giza are tombs built for pharaohs, but no mummy has ever been found in a tomb. Not one. Not ever. But in the Great Pyramid, we did find evidence that it might have been used as an ancient power plant. Big archaeology hates that idea. Now, when I was growing up, we were taught that Native Americans first arrived in North America by crossing the Bering Land Bridge in Alaska between 10 to 12,000 years ago. This was called the Clovis First Model because some stone tools were found in Clovis, New Mexico. Big archaeology wasn't even close on how people got to the Americas, or when. The Monte Verde site in Chile blew up the Clovis Model when it was dated to 14,800 years ago. Buttermilk Creek Complex in Texas was dated to about 15,500 years ago. The Bluefish Caves in Yukon, Canada have evidence suggesting human activity as far back as 24,000 years ago. Plus, there's hard evidence that people from Polynesia in the South Pacific traded with and mated with tribes in Guatemala many years before Columbus, and they didn't cross the Bering Land Bridge in Alaska. They sailed thousands of miles across the Pacific Ocean. This means they had advanced shipmaking skills and seamanship. They had knowledge of astronomy and the weather. To make that trip, they also had to have balls
2: of steel.
1: I would have preferred that you said nerves of steel, but but yeah, they were brave. Big archaeology knows the Mayan culture had a large population, but they were not considered to be very technologically advanced. But in 2023... Researchers deep in the Guatemalan jungle discovered a sprawling Mayan civilization. It covers more than 650 square miles. And here's the crazy thing. The cities were interconnected by a series of superhighways. And these weren't just paths or dirt roads. The roads were elevated to allow for drainage and even paved with white plaster. The Romans get a lot of credit for creating the first roads, but the Mayans beat the Romans to it by about 2,000 years.
0: They're the world's first uh, superhighway system that we have. What's amazing about them is that they unite all these cities together like a spider web, which forms one of the earliest and first state societies in the Western Hemisphere.
1: So big archaeology was wrong about Mayan technology. But they still had to get in the last word. Mainstream said, sure, they had hundreds of miles of roads, but they didn't have vehicles, they just walked. No animals or people pulling carts. They just walked hundreds of miles. Big archaeology said this is because the Mayans didn't discover the wheel. But Mayan toys have been discovered that have wheels. Big archaeology says the Mayans never thought to scale them up to put them on carts. How do we know this? Big archaeology says we know this because we haven't discovered the carts. Oh. But a year ago, big archaeology would have said there's no way the Mayans could have built a highway system. Why not? Well, because we haven't found one. Yet there it is. Big archeology span is quick to take a lack of evidence at face value, regardless of common sense. Like there was no such thing as the city of Dwarka, the advanced and prosperous city in India that was consumed by a great flood. That was all a myth. Then Dwarka was found and dated to the younger Dryas. There's no such thing as Atlantis, but it's hard to explain the Bimini Road in the Bahamas or the ancient city off the coast of Cuba that could be anywhere from 6,000 to 50,000 years old. There's no such thing as Mu, the continent that once connected Greece to Easter Island. Yet the languages from those two cultures share about a thousand words. And the Yanaguni Monument off the coast of Japan is right where Mu would have been. There was no such thing as Derinkuyu, the secret underground city that hid 20,000 people from danger for thousands of years. That was just a local myth. Then a man tried expanding his basement and realized it's already been expanded and the lost city of Derinkuyu was discovered. And that's why big archeology span says there was no advanced culture before the flood because there's no evidence of it, except there is. Every culture has a flood myth. Long before Noah built the ark, A great flood turned up in Mesopotamia in the epic of Gilgamesh. The ancient Sumerians, Egyptians, Greeks, Hindus, they all have a legend of a deluge that wiped the earth clean. The flood myth really is worldwide. The Norse have their own version of the Noah's Ark story. The Inca, the Aztec, tribes across America, Japanese, Chinese, Hawaiian, Australian, Aboriginal. This is just to name a few, the list is much longer. Now the legends vary, but they're all basically the same plot. People are misbehaving, so a flood is sent to wipe them out and start over with a few survivors. Now, I don't know about the misbehaving part, but we're pretty sure the flood really happened. But some of the flood legends have a twist. Those legends say that before the flood, there were advanced civilizations who flourished on their own continents, while primitive humans were still figuring out stone tools. Atlantis was a powerful and advanced island nation. It was larger than Asia and ruled by the descendants of gods. Atlantis was prosperous and technologically advanced, but the people became corrupt, prompting the gods to sink the island into the ocean in a single day and night of catastrophic earthquakes and floods. Lemuria was a huge continent in the Pacific Ocean, Lemuria was home to a spiritually advanced civilization that was sometimes ally and sometimes enemy of Atlantis. And then there was Mew. Mew is a continent either in the Pacific Ocean or Indian Ocean. It was once inhabited by an advanced civilization. The survivors of Mew brought their wisdom and began the civilizations of ancient Egypt and the Maya. Atlantis, Lemuria, and Mew are all similar stories in that they were highly advanced civilizations. All existed around 9600 B.C., all destroyed by a great flood. But in all three stories, there are a few survivors. After the floodwaters recede and their homelands are destroyed, these survivors seek refuge on the mainland. The people they find are kind but primitive. So the survivors grant them the gift of civilization.
2: And when you show up somewhere, it's always polite to bring something. Flower, bottle
1: of wine, civilization. I agree, that's just good manners. But it's at this time that agriculture explodes across the Middle East. Megalithic structures now appear. Complex cities emerge, all seemingly overnight. In Hindu, Matsya takes the form of a fish and guides King Manu to reestablish civilization. In Mesopotamia, Oannes emerged from the sea as half man, half fish. A merman. Yep. Hey, uh, ask him if he has a sister, will ya? Awanus teaches the Sumerians agriculture, writing, law, and all knowledge crucial for civilization. Quetzalcoatl, also associated with water, brought civilization to the Aztecs. In Egyptian, Polynesian, Japanese, Chinese, Norse, Hawaiian, Native American, there's a godlike teacher who comes from the sea to help restart civilization. And these saviors, or teachers, or whatever you want to call them, they all appear after the Great Flood at the end of the Younger Dryas. And they all transfer wisdom and knowledge to the primitive people that they meet and restart civilization. And there's more evidence. The cultures around the world seem to have been given the same knowledge. For example, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. Every culture knows about it. But every culture, new and old, refers to Sirius as a dog or a wolf. In ancient Iraq, Sirius was called the dog star that leads. In China, it was known as the heavenly wolf. Assyrians and Akkadians knew Sirius as the dog of the sun. And in North America, native tribes used largely canine terminology, like dog that follows mountain sheep or wolf star when referring to Sirius. Most cultures holding a reverence for the brightest star in the sky is understandable. But all of them referring to the same star as a dog or a wolf? That seems like a big coincidence. We don't believe in those. We don't. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, Bankuklu Tarla, a bustling city, appears in Turkey. Karhan Tepe, with its homes and halls and magnificent art, appears. And Gobekli Tepe is built. An entire complex dedicated to the star Sirius. And within the complex, ten-ton stone pillars that tell the story of man, the fire from the sky, the flood that swallows the earth and of civilization given a second chance. The pillars also offer a warning for future generations, for us. All that has happened before will happen again. The builders gave us symbols on stones and told us to watch the sky. They showed us the constellations to study. They gave us the exact date of the last disaster so we could prepare for the next one, because there's always a next one. The images carved in the stone pillars could be a guide to ensure humanity's survival. But if all that's true, why was it all intentionally buried? Around 10,000 years ago, the people of Gobekli Tepe took up a massive project. They filled in the entire compound with stone and debris. Then they covered it with earth and mud to make it seem like it was never there. There are two theories for why they did this. One, to preserve it or two, to hide it. An advanced society destroyed by an ancient cataclysm. The survivors venture out into the world, spreading wisdom and knowledge and sowing the seeds of civilization. Then in an instant, agriculture explodes. Cities are born and a new era of man begins, just not the first era of man. Not only is this a great story, it's one of my favorite stories. I read Graham Hancock's book Fingerprints of the Gods in the 1990s and I was hooked. I've been an ancient civilization junkie ever since. But is it true? Well, big archaeology says it's absolutely not true. But we've shown that lack of evidence is proof enough for the mainstream to say that something never existed. Only when dragged, kicking, and screaming to evidence of the Great Flood do they finally acknowledge it. And only when Gobekli Tepe is discovered does the date of the first civilization get pushed back. Then Bungkuk Tarla is found and the date changes again. And it may change again and again. So big archaeology was wrong about how advanced the people of the Stone Age were. They were clearly advanced enough to build monolithic monuments and huge, complex cities. It appears as if this skill and technology comes out of nowhere. We don't see older, smaller structures that show an evolution of technology that leads to something as magnificent as Gobekli Tepe. The technology just appeared, and it appeared at the end of the Younger Dryas, after the Great Flood. So it must be a transfer of technology from survivors of an ancient society whose civilization was lost beneath the waves. But let's be fair there was an evolution of technology leading to Gobekli Tepe. Natufian culture existed in the same area about 15,000 years ago. They were unusual in that they settled the area permanently. There's evidence of cemeteries, architecture, food production, animal domestication, and burials with elaborate mortuary treatments. The Natufians built organized stone structures decorated with art. This is 2,000 years before Gobekli Tepe. Ayamalaha was a Natufian settlement built around 12,000 years ago. They too used circular structures like those found at Gobekli Tepe. Pre-Natufian culture goes back to 23,000 years ago. Now it's rare to find evidence of this culture, but it's not impossible. There are engravings, ornaments, and beads that are older than Gobekli Tepe, thousands of years older. The monoliths at Göbekli Tepe are impressive, but the Natufians also created huge slabs of decorated limestone. Not as elaborate, but they were made with skill and craftsmanship. Kortik Tepe is another mound discovered in the Anatolia area of Turkey. Found there are pieces of very elaborate pottery, carvings, jewelry, tools, and fishing hooks. Kortik Tepe has been dated from 12,400 years ago to 11,700 years ago. So not only older than Gobekli Tepe, this settlement existed during the cold snap of the Younger Dryas. Now it is worth noting that Kortig Tepe disappears around the time of the flood. But before the flood, people lived there for a thousand years. So there is evidence of an evolution of technology, not just with jewelry and engraving, but even building large monoliths, all thousands of years before Gobekli Tepe. One of the great mysteries is why Gobekli Tepe was deliberately filled in. Now, the working theory is the earlier structures were pretty big and dug into a mound. An earthquake hit, knocked everything into the mound and made a mess of things. Then everyone in the area filled in the rest of the hole and built newer, smaller structures around the older, larger ones, structures that were designed to withstand earthquakes. Now, no one really knows for sure, but it's a theory that makes sense to me. And there are some issues with the dates as well. The date on Pillar 43, the Vulture Stone, that's 13,000 years ago. That doesn't line up with the end of the Younger Dryas, so it's not describing the Great Flood. But that date does line up with the beginning of the Younger Dryas. Was there an impact at that time too? Well, there probably was. It's believed that the abrupt cooling 13,000 years ago was caused by a series of events that happened at the same time. There are ice core samples that show an impact 12,887 years ago, and that date is accurate within five years. And this happened at the same time as a large volcanic eruption in Germany. This caused the earth to be covered in soot, which caused years of darkness. Meanwhile, the impacts disrupted the ocean currents, so everything got cold again. Not as cold as before, but still cold. Then about a thousand years later, another event, maybe another impact, maybe a massive solar event. We don't really know for sure, but something did happen to warm the earth and melt the ice caps really fast. We do have evidence of cultures that existed before, during, and after the Younger Dryas. Now, did we debunk the idea of an advanced culture before that? Absolutely not. I'm just trying to give you the full picture there absolutely could have been someone else here long ago. And we've talked before about how it would take only about 10,000 years before all evidence of the human race is gone. But here's the thing about that number. Civilization disappearing in 10,000 years assumes the Earth is peaceful. If one of these years the torrid meteor shower threw a rock at us, like it did during the Younger Dryas, well, it wouldn't take 10,000 years to erase our civilization. We'd be gone in a day. Here's how it happens. It's a brisk November evening. Maybe this year, maybe 20 years from now. It doesn't matter. Every November, the Earth passes through the torrid meteor cloud, and the Earth's sky lights up. People gather all over the world to see the event. Meteor-watching parties are common. You and a few friends decide to get together and see the show. The sky does not disappoint. Shooting stars zip across the night sky like fireflies. There are even larger comets that streak by for a full second or two before burning out. And once in a while, a big one. It's a fireball that lights up the sky, and for a moment, night turns to day. Now, everyone's heart races, but fireballs like these are known to happen during the Torrid shower. People remember the Torrids of 2015. That year, fireballs hit the earth in swarms. In 2020, a Torrid fireball exploded over Japan that sounded like a bomb going off. That one set off car alarms for miles. You continue to watch the sky and notice the shooting stars getting denser, thicker, then a fireball, then another. You feel a little anxiety, but the toward meteors have been happening your whole life and they've been nothing more than a light show. Then another fireball. This one looks like it's close. It vaporizes in a flash of light so bright that you have to shield your eyes. You and your group of sky watchers giggle nervously. Then three seconds later, a crack, then a boom. So loud you feel it in your stomach. Everyone agrees. This was fun, but let's go home. But now there's another fireball. Everyone turns to see. This one is different. It's not really streaking across the sky. It's expanding somehow no, it's not expanding, it's coming closer. It comes closer and closer, and there's no way to tell how big it is. From where you're standing, it's like a mountain made of fire. Just as panic sets in, it disappears somewhere over the horizon. You let out a deep sigh. You didn't realize it, but for the past 30 seconds, you've been holding your breath. You and your group are now frantically gathering your belongings. That was more than enough excitement for one evening. You even ask yourself if you even want to do this again next year but that question has already been answered for you you just didn't know it yet over the horizon where the fireball disappeared a ball of light emerges everything is lit up like the day no brighter than that it's so bright everything is just white the ball of white light grows larger and larger and you feel something deep in your brain that part of your brain that evolved two million years ago that blizzard brain, it sends you a single message. Run. You run. About 3,000 miles away, there has been an event. The meteor hits and vaporizes everything around the impact point for miles. Water, rock, cities, all vanish. Then the shockwaves start. Earthquakes radiate out from the impact point over and over again, as the earth reverberates like a bell. These earthquakes move faster than the speed of sound. They're so powerful, they disrupt the tectonic plates of the earth. That sets off a chain reaction of earthquakes and volcanoes across every major fault line. Forget LA and San Francisco, the San Andreas will either eat or burn the entire California coast. Then you've got the Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest, the Hayward Fault, the Calaveras Fault, the Garlock, the Wasatch, they all erupt from Western Canada to Baja, Mexico is leveled. Everything within 20 miles of the coast crumbles into the sea. Then the shockwaves roll back around the planet again and again and again. The biggest fault system in the United States is the new Madrid seismic zone. The most powerful earthquakes in U.S. history have come from here. When that fault goes, say goodbye to Chicago, Indianapolis, St. Louis, and down to New Orleans. All gone, crumbled, on fire, or underwater. The New Madrid Fault connects to the Ramapo Fault in the east and sets it off like a fuse. Ramapo extends through Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. Then the Charleston Fault in South Carolina goes next. From Boston to Seattle, from Maine to Miami, and everything in between, earthquakes rock the country over and over again. And this is happening everywhere in the world. Then comes the wind. A category 5 hurricane has wind speeds of 150 to 160 miles per hour. A cat5 hurricane is going to seem like a gentle afternoon. Rushing around the planet is a storm with winds over a thousand miles per hour. This is called the air blast. Anything wooden is gone. Cars, boats, people all gone. Only the sturdiest stone structures could survive the wind. But most stone structures have already been turned to rubble by the earthquakes. In some places, the wind lasts for 16 hours. And within the wind is everything. Buildings, cars, trees, everything. It's a food processor that pulverizes everything for hours. What happens next goes one of two ways. Option one, the rock hits solid earth. Now, if that happens, heat and ejecta cause wildfires for thousands of miles around the impact point. Radiating out from the center is a fireball moving at twice the speed of sound. This fireball is hotter than the surface of the sun. A land impact also launches millions and millions of tons of ejecta into the atmosphere. In fact, millions of tons of molten rock will leave the atmosphere and go into space. The rock cools and forms a shell of debris in orbit around the Earth. No more space station, no more satellites. The ejecta that remains in the atmosphere blocks out the sun for months. But it only takes a few days for plant life to start dying. The entire food chain is disrupted within a week and completely collapses in a month. All food is gone. And that's a land impact. Option two is an ocean impact. This is probably worse. The rock hits vaporizes the ocean water and collides with the bedrock. The earthquakes begin like before, but what's really dramatic is the tsunami. But it's much more than a tsunami, more than a mega tsunami. What this is, there's really no name for it. A wall of water rises about a mile and a half in the air. The water would be higher than the clouds if there were clouds. The shock waves and air blast dissipated all the clouds, leaving only dark streaks of smoke that turned the sky blood red. The wall of water extends in all directions. It moves at 500 miles per hour. By the time it makes landfall, it's even higher. As the water tears across the land, it collects debris. Every object the water touches is captured and becomes part of the wave. Within minutes, the front face of the wall is a solid mass of debris moving hundreds of miles per hour. The devastation is extreme. As the Earth reverberates, the secondary waves begin. These are smaller waves compared to the first, but they're still hundreds of feet high, and they pummel the coasts over and over and over again. About 24 hours later, the Earth settles. Volcanoes continue to erupt, and there are thousands of earthquake aftershocks, but most of the violence is over. This is the worst day in human history. But here's what's really scary. The scenario I just described has happened many times. So a question for the skeptics, how much evidence of human civilization would be left after this type of event? Skeptics say there would be evidence of trash, plastic, and steel. But would there? After the comet strike, the fireball, the shock waves, the 1,000 mile an hour wind, the string of mega tsunamis, I'm not sure how much of anything would be left after that. Now, you would think that this event would leave a mess of debris across the landscape, but it would be nothing like that. The land would be pristine. Well, pristine in a way. From horizon to horizon is mud, nothing but mud. Everything has been pulverized into dust, Any object larger than a basketball is buried under mud a thousand feet deep. Big archaeology says there was no early civilization because they haven't found one. Or maybe they just haven't dug deep enough. There's evidence of an ancient advanced civilization in myths and legends from cultures around the world. Not just evidence that a civilization was here, but also how it was destroyed. The Book of Revelation describes events that could be interpreted as impacts. And I beheld when he had opened
3: the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Revelation 6.
1: That sounds exactly like the impact I described earlier. The stars fall to the earth, the darkness, the mighty wind, and earthquakes strong enough to move mountains. In Indian texts, the Vedas and the Mahabharata, they contain descriptions of celestial events and weapons that have been interpreted as a comet or meteor impacts.
3: Gigantic elephants burnt by that weapon fell all around, uttering fierce cries loud as those of the clouds. Other huge elephants, scorched by that fire, ran hither and thither, and roared aloud in fear as if in the midst of a forest conflagration. Mahabharata, Book 7.
1: That sounds like molten ejecta hitting the earth and setting everything on fire, just like we'd expect. The Lascaux Caves in France are some of the most famous cave art ever found. One drawing called the Shaft Scene features a dying man and several animals. Researchers now say this describes a comet strike around 15,200 BC. Petroglyphs all over the world depict celestial objects with multiple tails. These have been suggested to represent the torrid meteor swarm. This petroglyph from Forsyth County, Georgia is a star map. It suggests a comet impact event in 536 AD. Ice core samples from Greenland confirm an impact sometime between 533 and 540. That impact had global ramifications and cooled the Earth over five degrees. There are more examples of impacts, and these are just the most obvious ones. And notice that they're not all from thousands of years ago. Some are from just hundreds of years ago. The Tunguska event in 1908 is thought to be a torrid meteor that strayed from the debris field. These impacts happen periodically, and they usually happen in the autumn when we cross the torrid debris field. And maybe that's the story being told on the Vulture Stone at Gobekli Tepe. Not the story of what happened in the past, but the potential danger we face right now. The torrid comets come every year, September to November. This year, the torrid comets peak on November 6th. You can see them for yourself. Now, sure, most of them look like shooting stars, but some of them are fireballs that light up the entire sky. Now, why does big archaeology and every world government discount this story? Because there's not a thing they can do about it. Every time we pass through the torrid comet cloud, we're playing Russian roulette. Every year, a new spin of the chamber, a new pull of the trigger. Now, chances are, when we pull the trigger, all we hear is a click but there are objects in the torrid cloud that are a mile wide. So even though the chance is small, there is a chance, a real chance, that one of those objects will find its way to us. And when that happens, our civilization ends once again. And there will be only a handful of survivors, the few people lucky enough to hide in mountain caves. And maybe those survivors will create cave paintings or rock carvings describing this world-ending event. However they do it, They'll want to tell our story, and it's an important one. Every year we take our chance with the Torids. One year we're going to lose. Then the only thing left of us, our entire civilization, will be one more very short story. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. My name is AJ. That's Uh, Ecclefish. You good? Uh,
2: this one has me a little rattled. I get it, but NASA is keeping an eye out for trouble. Oh, NASA's on it. Great. Now I feel better. Are you being sarcastic?
1: Of course I'm being sarcastic! This has been The Live Files. If you had fun or learned anything, do us a favor. Like, subscribe, comment, and share. That stuff really helps the channel. And like most topics we cover here, today's was recommended by you. So if there's a story you'd like to see or learn more about, go to the wi dot com slash tips. And if you'd like a deeper dive into this story and all the other topics we cover here, make sure you check out the podcast. The wi files Operation Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you need more wi files in your life, check out the wi files Discord. It's fun, it's free, and there are lots of wi files fans on there 24-7. I think we just hit 30,000 members. Special thanks to our patrons who make this channel possible. I dedicate every episode to you, and I know I say it every week, but I really mean it. Without your support, there would be no wi files. And if you'd like to support the channel, consider becoming a member on Patreon. For as little as three bucks a month, you get access to all kinds of perks, like you see the videos early without commercials, get special access on Discord, you get early access to fun products like the Hecklefish Talking Plushie, and you get two private live streams a week just for you. Another great way to support the channel is grab something from the Wi-Fi store. Grab yourself
2: a, a Hegglefish coffee mug and then you can stick your fist in and then you pour yourself a delicious beverage and then grab yourself a, a Hegglefish t-shirt and wrap that around your head like a turban and, 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 then, you, and then you get yourself a Hegglefish tugging plushy fish and tugging a fish
1: toy. That's going to do it. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and know that you are appreciated.
3: Oh, 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 yeah. I played for and scenario 51 A secret code inside the Bible said I was I love my UFOs and paranormal fun as well as music, so I'm singing the like I should. But then another conspiracy theory becomes the truth, my friends, and it never ends. No, it never ends. I feel the crap out Got stuck inside Mel's hole with MKL truck uh, Being only too aware Did Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing alone On a film set, or were the shadow people there? The Roswell aliens just fought the smiling man I'm told, and his name was cold and I can't Solar storms still come To Agatha, the secret city underground Mysterious number stations, planets are to Project Stargate, and what the Dark Watchers found well, In a simulation, don't you worry though The Black Knight satellite told me so I can't believe